Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. It's a new episode of the AJ Bruno Show today. My guest is Ken Gauze. He is an expert in foreign affairs and strategic studies whose work in the field dates back to the latter stages of the Cold War. He has also written numerous books dealing with North Korea. We'll have him on here in just a second. I also want to remind everyone, if you haven't done so yet, please follow our Twitter account. It's at Reagan Worldwide, at Reagan Worldwide. You can get updates on the show and all sorts of other interesting tidbits. And so without further ado, uh, let's get him on the line. Hello, Ken. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, it's nice to be with you. So you worked for the U.S. government in the 80s dealing with the Soviet Union. What did that job entail? Well, in the soon after I got out of college uh, in uh, 1982 and then 83, uh, I worked uh, for a variety of uh, different uh, U.S. government entities. The Foreign Broadcast Information Service, which uh, you know, kind of. Uh, tracked the world uh, press at the time, and uh, I focused on the uh, on uh, the Soviet Union, uh, doing Russian translations and things like that. And uh, then later on, I did contracting through a State Department contract uh, that uh, basically was designed around helping uh, the government uh, better understand, uh, you know, Russian politics and Russian decision-making. So you're also fluent in Russian, and your expertise originally began in Soviet and East European affairs. Uh, what was it that intrigued you about this area, and how has it changed since the collapse of the Eastern Bloc? Well, I got interested in uh, the Soviet Union kind of in a kind of an upward sort of way. Uh, I started out uh, in, in college at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee as a, as a math major and went through a variety of different majors. And, uh, and for a while there, I was uh, very enamored with modern European history uh and you know world war 1 world war 2 but as i started to think about it and in terms of you know what might make a viable career choice i kind of gravitated toward russian and political science and um and so that's kind of how i i got into it uh kind of fell into a variety of different uh, positions along the way as i said worked for the government uh in the uh, kind of the early to the mid 1980s and then later as uh in various research positions at uh various think tanks uh in kind of in the DC area uh taught some courses on uh, Soviet, uh, mainly Soviet military doctrine toward the late 1980s. And at about that time, I started to gravitate away from uh, the Soviet Union toward North Korea. So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it seemed to me that China was the logical main geopolitical rival of the U.S., yet it seems that North Korea has been far more of a threat, at least in the immediate times. Um, why do you think that's been the case? Well, first, uh, you know, why I, I got interested in North Korea is because toward the end of the, the Soviet period, uh, you know, when you started to look around as a Sovietologist about what you might want to do in terms of focusing on another country, you try to gravitate toward the communist-based systems. 
And, you know, there's basically three communist-based systems that you could look at. You could look at Cuba. You could look at China. And there were a lot of people focusing on China at that time. And then North Korea. And, you know, basically North Korea I saw as a as a country that uh, could potentially be of interest to U.S. national security, but was not being looked at by a lot of people, especially North Korean leadership issues. And... That's kind of why I gravitated toward there. In terms of why North Korea versus China is being a, a potential you know, threat, I think it's because of the asymmetric relationship between the United States and North Korea that North Korea feels somewhat emboldened to go up that escalatory ladder, uh, knowing that they have you know, China as uh, basically has their back to a certain extent. And then we saw this in the late 1990s and early 2000s, that they're willing to go up that escalatory ladder in order to set the table for whatever negotiations or whatever they were trying to get out of the United States or South Korea at the time. And they felt that they could go further up that escalatory ladder than we could. You know, when you look at peer competitors like the Soviet Union or Russia and China vis-a-vis the, vis the United States, it's much more difficult to get involved in that tit-for-tat escalatory, uh, you know, moving up and down the escalatory ladder than it is with an asymmetric relationship as exists between North Korea and the United States. Mm -hmm. One thing that I think distinguishes, you know, especially China and North Korea, uh, China's been obviously allowing a lot more capitalism than you would under real communist government, but North Korea is sticking with their Jewish philosophy, which obviously not creating a lot of wealth. Um, so is it that China is more motivated by power than ideology, uh, you know, maintaining their authoritarian government, while North Korea is just so beholden to that that even any sort of logic would not make them break from it? Well, I think, uh, you know, you have two different systems. One, you have uh, in China, you have an authoritarian system. In North Korea, you have a totalitarian system. It is very much more difficult to break away from uh, established traditions uh, in a totalitarian regime than it is in an authoritarian regime. Uh, North Korea is willing to basically sideline a major portion of its population uh, in support of uh, the Kim family regime, and because of that, that they are willing to take a lot more pain when it comes to the economic side of the equation than, say, China would, because you know China's got a large population that they cannot cannot ignore, uh, and so it was much more in um, much more pressure, I would think, on in terms of the development uh, of China that they would have to at some point embrace. Uh, opening up of their economy, and I think North Korea has been able to stave that off for quite some time, although I would say that Kim Jong-un is making some baby steps in a direction of some minor economic reforms. How far he's willing to go, uh, we'll have to wait and see. So you've done a lot of research, obviously, on how to impact authoritarian regimes. Um, unlike others which have either collapsed or have been influenced to change, um, you know, I guess more recently, Vietnam, our relations with them are fairly warm now. Even Cuba, there's been some, you know, loosening up in the past years. But North Korea has essentially been the same throughout its entire existence. What makes this a unique example? 
because it's basically a family-run regime. There is two things that drive decision-making in North Korea. It drove it under Kim Il-sung, it drove it under Kim Jong-il, and it now drives it under Kim Jong-un. There are two centers of gravity that, that will absolutely not be violated by the leaders. That is regime survival and perpetuation of Kim family rule. They are not going to make any decisions that are going to undermine either one of those tenets. And because you have the, the legitimacy within the regime is centered on the Kim family, it really means that you're going to have a perpetuation of this type of rule as long as the regime can hold out. And uh, they have proven themselves to be rather resilient. Uh, we call it Juche, as a kind of a self-sufficient uh, philosophy of, of running their country. And, uh, you know, they're going to basically try to keep the outside world at bay as long as they can. And they have been able to do it. They've been able to weather the Cold War. And, uh, you know, in the mid-1990s, uh, even the um, the intelligence community thought that they only had about five years before they would implode. And, uh, of course, once Kim Jong-un came into power in 2011, a lot of people were also saying, you know, that this, this you know, 20-something-year-old kid uh, could not hold things together for very long. But we have seen that it has been a very resilient leadership because they are willing to sacrifice everything in support of those two centers of gravity. People talk all the time about what can be done about this whole situation, but if North Korea was ever, say, attacked, they'd be able to kill hundreds of thousands with their rockets down the south, not to mention the nuclear weapons that now exist. So given that, what solution would you suggest? I think you have to engage North Korea. I think if you have any opportunity to possibly affect this regime over time. And when I talk about over time, I'm talking decades. I'm not talking years. And that's what undermines a lot of U.S. policy because we tend to think in the short term as opposed to the long term. I don't think pressure works against a regime. I don't think the maximum pressure brought Kim to the to Singapore summit, for example. I, I think that engaging this regime over time and, you know, building up some leverage through that engagement uh, can potentially get you – it's not going to solve all your problems. It's not going to make North Korea into a democratic society, but it may make them much more manageable to deal with. Uh, I am much more comfortable in the situation we are now than we were in 2016 and 2017 when they were testing their, their nuclear weapons and, and nuclear weapons program and their missile program. Right now, that you know, they're trying to engage – uh, and I think that, you know, they have a nuclear program, but it's not a full-up nuclear program. It is There are various parts of this program that have not been realized yet in terms of mating a warhead to a missile, being able to ensure that those missiles can do reentry without destroying the warheads, uh, that can ensure some sort of targeting capability. They have none of that. They Right now we have, they have what we call the nukes in the basement. They have some nuclear weapons. They have uh, a missile capability, but right now they are not testing it. And we should try to engage right now, focused on trying to keep them from, from testing it. But we, you know, if we're going to try to return to some sort of maximum pressure strategy to try to deal with it, that's not going to work. Bloody nose strategy is not going to work against North Korea. They'll either, you know, 
what you described, a possible violent reaction to that, especially towards South Korea. Or they could basically take the, the bloody nose and play the victim, which they have often done, and try to appeal to international community and make the United States out as being the pariah. So I think the only real viable strategy uh, left to us for right now is what we are trying to do, which is engage them. But we tend to think that uh, you know that North Korea has agreed to denuclearization, which Kim has not agreed to denuclearization. It's kind of strange we read that in the you know in the Western press, and even the Trump administration keeps talking about how they're going to denuclearize. They agreed to denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. With, and this is something North Korea has been talking about for decades, and that means that both sides denuclearize. That does not mean unilateral denuclearization on North Korea's part. So they would prefer to have a phase-by-phase, you know, tit-for-tat sort of engagement where they give up something, we give them something. And uh, we engage over time, build up trust uh, and work towards some sort of peace regime uh, where you're – negotiating not as adversaries but as countries that have some similar interests. And I would argue that that's probably our most viable strategy right now. The problem with something like that, though, is uh, Kim Jong-il's regime, weren't we giving them aid for food and such and they were just putting it into their military? Doesn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, if their military is not doing anything and their military is not – their military right now, we tend to think that, you know, we think about the North Korean threat as this kind of bolt from the blue that they're going to come over the DMZ and that they are going to attack the South. They don't have that capability anymore. They uh, Really, Kim Il-sung really admitted that, and we've seen this in, in some of the declassification of Warsaw Pact regime files. Uh, that uh, that really they realized that they no longer had that conventional capability by the uh, the mid-1980s. And I would say that engaging them, yes, the elite are going to take their cut. There's no way we can avoid that. If you want to have actual leverage and traction on North Korea, the, the elites have to be satisfied first before the general North Korean population. But to expect that, uh, that North Korea is just going to build up and wait and you know, attack once they have built up their, their capability by taking our largesse, I, I don't think that it would, it would work that way. I think that they do want to be a strong and prosperous nation. I do believe that they, want, they see their military as guaranteeing a deterrent both against South Korea and the United States. But, uh, you know, as long as they don't develop their nuclear program beyond where it is right now, I don't think that we have to, you know, too much to worry about that. It will be nice if on the back end of this engagement strategy we could work toward, you know, salami slicing away that nuclear program. But that's going to take, you know, a lot of confidence building and trust building on both sides for that to happen. But it's also important to understand that Kim Jong-un is laboring under different dynamics inside the regime than his father. His father was willing to think short-term, tactically for short-term gains. And so a lot of that was taking what he could give and, and building up the military because he was running the regime under a military first policy. Kim Jong-un is not running North Korea under military first policy. The military does not get the first cut at everything like it did under Kim Jong-il. 
the party is now getting the first cut at everything and a certain amount of the elite, which we call the Danju. And these are the moneyed elite inside North Korea. These are the 20 and 30 and 40-somethings. These people have a view of the outside world, and they have growing expectations. And they have a lot of influence on the way that Kim Jong-un sees the world. How do you see the three generations of Kim leadership juxtaposed with one another in terms of competency and whether we're talking about outright madmen or more so more nefarious authoritarian dictators? I would see them as more the latter. I see them much more as a, yes, they are authoritarian in their their tendencies. They are, though, very pragmatic, and I see Kim Jong-un being a very pragmatic leader. I don't see any of the Kim leaders, be Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, or Kim Jong-un as being madmen. I think they have a very rational point of view given their logic and their circumstances in which they live in. Uh, I think that every move that Kim Jong-un has made, including the assassination of his older half-brother Kim Jong-nam in Malaysia in 2016, I believe could be justified given from where he sat in terms of power dynamics inside the regime. I think that that he has been very reluctant to go up that escalatory ladder uh, in a, in, without leaving himself some sort of, a, uh, of an off-ramp in order to de-escalate. So I see him as being a, a rational actor. I don't see his, his equities, though, naturally lining up with everything we would want. I don't see him wanting to give up his nuclear program that's tied directly to the legitimacy in those two centers of gravity that I talked about. Uh, so to hope that he is going to give that up, uh, I think, is probably a bridge too far. He may be willing to give up parts of the program, but probably not all of it. He's going to want to have the capability to at least justify to his leadership uh, that he is protecting the regime. Uh, so I would seem as a leader with authoritarian tendencies, but very pragmatic in his actions. Mm-hmm. Some say Kim Jong-un might actually be the worst of the three. You mentioned his half-brother likely being assassinated, but also he had his uncle, who was his number two in the regime and important, obviously, for his relation with China, had him executed. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. what do you make of that? Well, Chung Son-taek was building up a power behind the throne that was threatening his own power base uh, within the within the regime. You've got to remember, this is a third-generation uh, uh, leader uh, in, in North Korea. That means that his legitimacy, by definition, was weaker than his father or his grandfather. And the fact that he had an uncle that was basically building up a second center of power within the regime was a direct threat to him. He had to eventually take him out. Uh, so it makes sense from where he sat. Yes, it was a very brutal thing to do, but he lives in a very brutal neighborhood in a very brutal system uh, that uh, you know you have to take uh, you have to act in certain ways in order to be able to rule a regime like North Korea. But have the purges been larger than his father and grandfather in general? Because obviously, he has the support of a lot of members of the elite. But I would think that they would be paranoid that they could possibly be next. Yes, the higher you get up in the regime, the closer you get to the center of uh, of the leadership, uh, including you know around Kim himself. It becomes a very 
kind of dicey position to be in. Uh, the two key leaders that we tend to watch a lot, uh, his two lieutenants are Che Long He and Wang Pyong So. Uh, and we have seen one on the rise and the other kind of, you know, falling and disappearing and then vice versa. So he's kind of keeping these people off guard. There is no real number two in the regime. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, whether when you compare the amount of people that he has killed versus his father or grandfather, it's, it's, I would say, roughly comparable. His father, you know, had a lot of people purged. Again, we also have these apocryphal stories we need to be careful about. You know, somebody disappears and we talk about them being, you know, executed with anti-aircraft guns only to find out that they reappear about a year or so later. You know, we need to be very careful about how many people are being executed, how many people are being publicly executed, uh, how many people are being sent off for re-education and then recycled back into the leadership, how many people are, are being moved from one position down to another position then back, brought back up, not purged, but as a way of regenerating information back into the center of the regime. There are a variety of things that... that um, you know, that that Kim is doing that is somewhat different than the way that his father and grandfather ran the regime. But in terms of brutality, yes, he's done some brutal things, but, uh, you know, you could also point to some very brutal things his father and grandfather did. I would think that probably you could say that there have probably been an uptick in terms of public executions under Kim Jong-un, but it's not dramatically out of variance with what we saw under Kim Jong-il and uh, definitely under Kim Il-sung. Let's say hypothetically Kim Jong-un was killed. Uh, who would be likely to seize power in such a scenario, and would you see any sort of significant changes occurring if it's not a clear family success? All right, that's a that's a good question. It's probably the heart of of what we're trying to study these days. Is It's not so much whether he would be killed, because we don't think necessarily that they're – because that regime has been so coup-proofed, it's going to be very hard for anybody to get together with some sort of a plot against Kim. And besides, he's the center of legitimacy within the regime. But the question is, you know, this guy has got some real significant health problems. Uh, and uh, if he were to become incapacitated or die tomorrow, I think we would have a very serious situation on our hands. There is not a natural continuance of governance plan in place as far as we can tell. Most likely what you would have, you would have to bring forward another male heir uh, of the Kim family to be the source of legitimacy. Uh, that would probably be Kim Chong-chol, his uh, older brother, direct older brother, uh, who is the only time we ever see him is when he's out, you know, out in the world going to Eric Clapton concerts, and we haven't seen him in a while. But uh, we, and then behind the scenes, there would be a collective leadership of a variety of different power elements: the Kim family, the party, the military, the internal security apparatus that would be running things. But North Korea is not set up for to really sustain a collective leadership over time. So therefore, I think instability would eventually creep in, and then you could begin to have the, the regime uh, begin to fight fight amongst itself and potentially fall apart. Mm-hmm. So both the North and the South talk about reunification quite often, but when the South does it, I mean, they realize it's kind of pointless since reunification to the North means being under the Kim regime? 
I think both sides, they need, neither of them talk about it directly. And even when you talk to people in South Korea and even officials in South Korea, or you even talk about North Koreans, you know, they talk about the reunification, but it's in a very theoretical sense. But you know that both sides assume that they would be the leader in a reunification. The North Koreans would want reunification under North Korea and vice versa under South Korea. Uh, the thing is, neither one of those sides wants to capitulate to the other side. And so Kim Il-sung came back up in the, in the day talking about this kind of confederation where you would have the two sides kind of living as one country but two systems in harmony. Um, that might be a way forward, but you know, North Korea would have to be built up economically over time. Otherwise, it would be a huge suck on the South Korean economy if North if they were to do reunification anytime soon. And that's why you see when you talk to North, uh, South Koreans these days, especially the younger generation, they don't want to have anything to do with reunification because they don't want to have to put up with the economic hardship uh, that would come along with, uh, with a reunification. And that's what we would talk about in terms of being a soft landing. Most people tend to think reunification will be a hard landing, that there will be some sort of conflict or a crisis inside North Korea collapse or whatever, and then South Korea by default would reunify and become the, uh, you know, the leading force of a reunification. And if that were to happen, I think it would be a, you know, a calamity, not only for the peninsula, but for the region and possibly the world in terms of economic consequences. No, I can say that could happen. So to get in a bit to the mentality of just the general population in North Korea. I remember seeing some of the videos after Kim Jong-il died where you see people crying uncontrollably in the streets. How much of that do you think are actual true believers and how much are people just pretending? I think if you go back, it's interesting. And one thing that I would suggest that you do, because it's an, it's an interesting thing, an interesting exercise, is to go back and look at the, the funeral processions and the the ceremonies around in 1994 when Kim Il Sung died, and when they happened in uh, 2011 when Kim Jong Il died, and they in the way that the North Korean propaganda tried to portray it was almost an identical sort of circumstances in terms of how the positioning of different people and so on and so forth. Even if you look at Kim Il Sung, I mean Kim, Kim Jong Il and his sister, younger sister, Kim Kyung-hui in 1994, and then look at Kim Jong-il and his younger sister, Kim Yo-chung, in, in 2011. They were dressed the same. They were positioned the same. So it was obviously trying to suggest to the North Korean people that they, you know, that the great leader had died and there was a similar sort of outpouring of grief. I would say that probably the, the grief in 1994 was was legitimate and it was the you know the north koreans were scared their god had died i think by 2011 you know they were concerned but they did not look at kim jong il as a god the way that they did uh kim il sung but the the you know the the emotions were probably real but not as intense as they were in 1994 mm, makes sense so a, a few uh, other questions here, but first I'm curious. I've seen some different accounts from the U.S. or Korea. When exactly Kim Jong Un was born? I think this is strange that no one knows for sure. Which which do you think is probably the right one, and why is there some confusion about that? 
Well, this this was also the case with uh, with uh, Kim Jong Il. I mean, Kim Jong Il, we were did he was he born in 1941 or was he born in 1942? And there are reasons behind why they would do this. 1942 was exactly 30 years from when his father Kim Il Sung was born, who by the way was born on the night the Titanic sank, April 15th, 1912. So having that symmetry was an important thing for the legitimacy building up or, you know, kind of the narrative that they were to build around the heir apparent. And also the fact is, in if you look at the timing, it would be a period in which Kim Il-sung was a fighting, actively fighting the Japanese versus in a Red Army military camp in Russia, in Khabarovsk. So, you know, as part of the narrative around Kim Jong-il's birth, uh, which they almost made it biblical, you know, that he was bound, born on Mount Paik too, and that the snows melted, and then the birds started, to, and the animals started to speak in human voices, and this great leader was born. That worked much better in 1942 than it did in 1941 sort of thing that they were trying to create in, in terms of getting the numbers right and getting everything lined up. Same thing with Kim Jong-un is we believe it. I think that it has come out now that he was born uh, in uh, in 1984. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but again, it has, they are very careful about releasing too much personal information about the leader himself and when he was born. Because again, he was born to really not the official wife of Kim Jong-il, it's his fourth mistress slash wife. And, you know, within the leadership, they would know if it was this year versus that year about the legitimacy of the birth. Uh, and so they've kind of kept that out of the public record. Interesting. It's all for internal purposes. Oh, that makes sense. So a few years ago, there was a movie called, and uh, it seemed to me that an entire mass industry bowed down to the will of North Korea by trying to bury that film. What did you make of that whole situation? Oh, you mean the interview? Yeah. Yeah, the interview. Uh, it's That was a very interesting situation. And why was it interesting? It was interesting by how, by how North Korea responded to it. Now, you would normally think that if the world was and, – and oh, by the way, Hollywood only has two movies out there where we have actually assassinated a sitting leader. One was Team America with the puppets, and it was North Korea. The other is the interview with – you know, or at least these are the two high-profile movies. So they've both been aimed at North Korea. North Korea sees it obviously as a smear on their great leader – and something that has to be responded to. Now, in the past, they may have done something very violent in response to that, you know, attack South Korea or, or done something within the terrorist realm as they they did in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties in the lead up to the uh, to the Seoul Olympics. Uh, but they didn't do that. They decided to go to the cyber realm. Why did they do that? The interesting thing is, if you go back and look at Kim Jong Un. And what does Kim Jong-un want to hang his hat on as being his claim to legitimacy and his, uh, basically his legacy? 
His father's legacy was the creation of the nuclear program. I think Kim Jong-un, if you listen to his first public speech on April 15th, the 100th anniversary, 2012, the 100th anniversary of his grandfather's birth, the first time he is publicly heard by the, the, by the public in North Korea, he talked about the economy and what he wanted to do for the economy. And this is the speech where he talked about the non-belt tightening, you know, that people would no longer have to tighten their belts, which is basically coded language that we are going to have a prosperous economy. And look at what he did beginning in, in May of 2013. From May of 2013 to August of 2012, I mean, 2015, they did not conduct any provocations in terms of uh, of uh, nuclear or missile tests or anything like that. And so what they did do is they went on a massive charm campaign to reach out to the world to try to get economic aid to realize this economic prosperity that Kim had promised. So when you had the interview happen in 2014, right in the middle of this charm campaign, North Korea was then faced with a problem. We have to defend the honor of our supreme leader. At the same time, we can't you know, undermine our diplomatic charm campaign. So what are we going to do? We're going to use the cyber approach in which we can keep our fingerprints off of the, the attack, but kind of make everybody know that you know, we were behind it. And by that way, you keep from going up the escalatory ladder, you keep from undermining your charm campaign, and you're able to have your cake and eat it too. It was a kind of a brilliant way of approaching and solving this particularly thorny problem that they were faced with. No, a smart way to go about it. About it. And uh, you mentioned uh, Kim Jong-un uh, making a speech. One thing I learned recently, I didn't realize that his father was so socially awkward to the point where he only made one speech in his entire reign. I thought that was a strange fact. It's not only a speech. He only was heard in public for 12 seconds. Wow. It was in 1992 at a military parade in which he kind of launched the parade. It was a 12-second speech. That was the only time that the general public ever heard his voice. We have, you know, obviously... Uh, some tape recordings of him that were made by the uh, a South Korean actress and her husband who were kidnapped by the North Koreans to help develop their movie industry, and they covertly, you know, tape recorded some of their conversations with with Kim Jong Il. But that was about the only, you know, anything that we knew about what he sounded like. We knew he had a bit of a lisp. Uh, you know, he had uh, he was kind of embarrassed about his his speech patterns, uh, and um, we don't see that under under Kim Jong Un. Kim Jong Un is definitely something. The way his mannerisms and everything are very reminiscent of his grandfather. Hmm. I'm wondering, have you traveled to North Korea personally, uh, or is there, or if not, is there a particularly interesting story related to your expertise you have with you could share? No, I have been told. Basically, that I cannot go to North Korea. I am too well known a figure on focusing on North Korean leadership stuff. I would not be welcome there. Uh, I have been around North Korea and, and China and Dandong, and I've been on the DMZ many times, but uh, but I've never been inside North Korea. I've interviewed most of the senior North Korean defectors who have come out over the years, but but I've never been inside North Korea itself. No. No. So. Moving forward, do you see the North Korea issue 
as the most serious threat to the U.S. and world stability in general, or where do you place the most concern? I I think that they have to be probably when we think about the the three primary or four primary threats out there. When if you want to talk about adversaries, you know Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. North Korea is the one that could blow up in our face and catch us completely off guard. And for that reason, I think we have to pay a lot of attention to them. Over the long term, obviously, the rise of China is going to be something I think is very much of a concern to us. Uh, that's why I think that you know, engaging North Korea gives us a chance to potentially flip North Korea or take them off the chessboard as a wedge piece for China. I think we have to be thinking about North Korea as part of a larger regional strategy as opposed to just a black and white zero-sum game on the Korean Peninsula, which is what we tend to think of it today. Uh, as far as Russia is concerned, you know, Russia is, is, you know, not, it doesn't have the resources that China has, but it does have, it's, uh, it definitely has a worldview and it definitely has a worldview that doesn't necessarily line up with the United States. And the, so they will be constantly challenging us here and there, but I don't see them as, you know, they're not going to be coming through the Folger Gap or, you know, things that we worried about during the, the Soviet period, but they they will they will be a constant challenge for us. Uh, as I said, China is going to be the big regional behemoth that we're going to have to deal with. And Iran, you know, is going to be continue to do what Iran does uh, in the region because they want to have influence in the region. They're fighting a proxy war with South uh, with Saudi Arabia with Israel, and we're going to you know we're going to get crosswise with that, of course. But uh, I think all of those issues, all of those adversaries can be managed to a certain extent, uh, but North Korea could be the one that would explode in your face. And I think, you know, we have to keep our eye on the ball. The one thing that we cannot do is lay, lull ourselves into a sense of complacency to where we declare victory on the, uh, in, uh, in Korea and withdraw our troops from the peninsula because that, I think, would undermine our own position in Asia. And that's the thing I'm most concerned about. No, I agree. That would be a tragic mistake. Well, you gave some superb insight, and it was really fascinating to hear it all, and I want to thank you again for Well, thank you for having me on. Great. Thanks, and take care. Bye-bye. Ken Gauz, a really great show focusing on North Korea and a bit with his experience as well. So uh, we'll be back next Monday. Uh, We're switching back here's Again, uh, to a show with John Carroll Lynch. He's an actor and comedian. You've known him in a lot of different roles. Um, Drew Carey's show. He's been in Turn. He was in The Founder movie recently. And a lot of others. So that should be a show. You want to tune in for that one, I'm sure. And we'll be having more other interesting programs in the near future. So until next time, this has been A.J. Bruno for the A.J. Bruno Show. I will see you soon. So long for now. Thanks.